the Googleable podcast. This week, the federal government has reached a deal with Google to pay Canadian journalists. We'll see if Taproot makes that cut. Meanwhile, City Council makes a cut to the proposed budget adjustment increase. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Stephanie. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 244. You heard right off the top. Welcome back to the show, Stephanie. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be back. (laughs) Uh, Of course, Stephanie is Taproot's new reporter. This is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. And this week, well, we've got a monster of an ad to read, Mac. Let's just jump right into it to tell you all about Strong Towns. Chuck Marone of Strong Towns is coming to Edmonton in December. And Strong Towns is on a mission to replace the post-World War II suburban experiment with a pattern of development that is financially strong and resilient. This event is going to be a unique opportunity to take part in a growing dialogue on sustainable urban development. Building a Stronger Town, an evening with Charles Marone, takes place December 13th at Metro Cinema, but that's not the only event he's in town for. He's doing that keynote and a Q&A on the 13th, and then the next day on December 14th, he's leading a workshop in room 3-57 of the Henry Marshall Tory building at the University of Alberta called Building a Stronger Town, where you'll discuss in small groups how to put the strong town's concepts into action. Tickets are $30 for the one on December 13th and $22 for the workshop on December 14th. You can choose to go to one or both. That's not the price for our dear listener of Speaking Municipally because you can get 50% off with the promo code TAPROOT while supplies last. These events are made possible by the University of Alberta Sustainability Council, the School of Urban and Regional Planning, the Edmonton Metro Region Board, the City of Edmonton, Councillor Ashley Salvador and Councillor Michael Jens. Many thanks to them for arranging this deal for Speaking Municipally listeners. Once again, you can use the offer code TAPROOT when you buy your tickets, and you can find links to both events at strongtowns.org events. Uh, I gotta say, Mac, this is a match made in heaven for our podcast audience. Sometimes you get, you know, the ad uh, from on 99% of Visible for anti-science supplement pills, and you're like, <laughs> hmm, you know, I don't know that there's a mix here. I think our listeners might be able to go to this event. Yeah, I think it's on brand for sure. I actually happened to see Chuck Marone's keynote speech when I lived in Kamloops randomly, long story, but I saw it and it was really cool. And I'm assuming it's going to be the same-ish speech, but like if you listen to this podcast and you somehow don't know what Strong Towns is, just go. You will love it. You will go away feeling very inspired and it is very cool and very relevant to Edmonton. We have so many roads that are falling into disrepair, nowhere near enough money to, you know, service them. And I think that that might be a great segue. Wow. Just coming in here and taking my job on the (laughs) segues. (laughs) I just started there and I was like, oh, this is kind of (laughs) good. Well, uh, go figure. We're talking about budget this week and council did it. Mac, uh, I think we both overestimated the amount of time it would take for them to complete budget. I was worried about losing my Christmas break. You were talking about more debate. They kind of just blew through the whole budget process and they have approved a 6.6% property tax hike for 2024. Yeah, it's down from the proposed to uh, more than 7%, whatever it was, still higher than what they had approved in the four-year budget last year, but it's an improvement. And all of them are quick to point out that they were able to bring the taxes down. Councilor Carmel even congratulated administration for not starting it 
you know, eight or nine percent so that council could only whittle it down to seven percent. So most of council, with one exception, seemed pretty happy with uh, the six point six percent that they landed at. And yeah, we were worried about maybe going into the holidays because we were hearing so much about is there going to be a big contingent voting no? You know, do the folks who are opposed to the police funding of which a good chunk of this percentage increases for police. Are they going to vote no? Is that going to get us into a situation where we, you know, have uh, too many people vote against the budget where they have to come back and do it again? But none of that really happened. In the end, it was a 12 to 1 vote on the operating budget. Only Councillor Rice was opposed. And on the capital adjustment, it was an 11 to 2 vote with Principe and Rice opposed. We heard from councillors Principe and Hamilton, who had previously voted no, that basically their assessment was, yeah, they still don't agree with the budget, but this adjustment that they're voting on is a reasonable adjustment because probably the adjustment is basically funding police. And we did hear some others like Councillor Knack and Councillor Cartmel also try to justify why they had voted no last year, but are voting yes this time. You know, Councillor Knack talked about how it'd be pretty hypocritical to support basically every amendment to increase the budget and then vote no against it in the end, which is something that I think you've called him out on before in the past, Troy. You know, we we avoided that budget chicken, as you say. There was also a surprising amount of consistency, I thought, in the messaging about this. Like the official line seems to be $8.71 per day for more than 70 services. Several of the councillors mentioned those figures in their closing remarks. I heard the mayor on the radio this morning. He was talking about that number again. You know, they really tried to position it not so much as a 6.6% increase, but wow, look at all the value you get for just 8.71. Mac, I've never once thought about my city of Edmonton property tax as a per day expenditure, nor do I actually think that 8.71 per day is actually a number that gives me a whole lot of joy. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) This is the sort of like football fields measurement of it's like we take a unit that no one would ever expect to use and expect that to be meaningful. Do you think it's better or worse than the typical number we see, which is the in this case for 2024, $747 in property taxes for every (laughs) $100,000 of assessed home value? That's usually what we hear, right? Some sort of per 100,000 as if every house just equally fits into nice, even $100,000 increments. I think overall, the city has failed to succeed in communicating about property taxes, not the least of which because there's no mention of the education property tax. A third of my property tax bill goes directly to the province. It always strikes me as odd. If the province is not playing ball with the city, and indeed, you know, with provincial legislation preventing the city from talking to the feds independently of the province coming down. With this acrimonious relationship with the province, it is striking to me that the city never sort of hits back and says, well, if you're not doing your responsibility, we're just doing our responsibility. But once again, we don't see that and probably because bureaucrats don't feel enfranchised to do so. Well, I wanted to highlight some of the things that various members of council said about the budget in their closing remarks. And and I'll jump right to Michael Jans because I think they essentially left that job to him. He used almost his entire five minutes to talk about how province isn't paying its fair share. He talked about, you know, the photo radar funding going away, the province reducing the amount that it actually pays in property taxes, and that the province has this really large surplus. And yet, you know, councillors are left debating whether or not they should cut the grass once or twice a year. You know, he was essentially doing all of the work, the heavy lifting there to criticize the province and nobody else mentioned it. And it wasn't in the news release. Before we get to some of the other remarks, something else that was not in the news release, any mention of police funding, (laughs) none whatsoever. 
not even a passing mention. The only, the word police shows up once in the context of the capital budget because they approved some funding for police equipment, as we've talked about in a previous episode. And then on the operating side of things, you know, we saw that 6.6% increase and there's things in there that we've been talking a lot about and hearing a lot about from council, like increased bus service hours and funding to operate the Metroline LRT to Nate Station. So there was a, a good chunk of that, was which was about transit. And note that is only to Nate Station. We talked about a previous episode, the debate whether to go all the way to Blatchford Gates. They won't be doing that. They will be terminusing the Metroline LRT at Nate for the time being. The new Nate Station, right? The new, yes. The bigger one? Okay. Yeah, not the temporary one. Troy, a quick question. I see in the news release and I saw in some of the reporting that people talked about this advancing work on the anti-racism strategy, but there's nothing in the amendment tracker about this. Do you know which one this is or like what they approved for it? I heard a lot of counselors talking about it, but like sort of everything with Edmonton anti-racism, I can't quite find concrete details about what precisely it is or what actions it funds, but uh, everyone did seem keen to talk about it. Another one I wanted to mention was encampment response. So council uh, did approve unanimously $2 million in 2024 and another million dollars in 2024 to fund all of this different pots of money to fund 50% of the core encampment and unsheltered homelessness response service package that was presented earlier in the month. This is a thing that several of the councillors mentioned they keep hearing about from constituents who've seen Dale McPhee, the police chief in the, in the media recently talking about encampments. And so uh, council agreed to put some more money into that service. I guess the final operational piece comes to OP12, which uh, in closing remarks, everyone talked about a little bit. That's the budget saving motion at the city of Edmonton, which hasn't quite delivered yet. OP12 is promising to deliver around $240 million in savings. And as of yet, you know, a year in, it's only seemed to found between 20 and $40 million. And that was a point of consternation for many a councillor around the table. Yeah, Councillor Knack, uh, Councillor Carmel, several of them mentioned, you know, OP12. And, and Councillor Carmel in particular said he's just really not happy with the results. And he said that the spring soba is deadline day. He kind of threw the gauntlet down and said, you know, administration's got to find their, their cost savings by the time we get to the spring supplemental operating budget adjustment. Or else what? Or else what? I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I mean, I'll vote no. He has a way to say taxes increases are not my fault. Mm. I don't know. But, you know, he was uh, he was quite firm on that one. It's interesting that you bring up Councillor Cartmel's gusto, because that was one point that I significantly bumped on during these discussions. There was one point where the budget was about to be approved. It was very clear that the motion was going to pass. And Councillor Tim Cartmel was talking about why he would be supporting this. And one of the things he said was, I am done opposing bike lanes. He said, this is the gauntlet. We've approved bike lanes. This is over. We're ready to go. And I'm 100% behind this. And therefore, I expect all my council colleagues to get behind the police. This is one of those insidious twists of language and twists of rhetoric that Councillor Tim Carmel is quite famous for because when you actually look at the budgetary impacts, in terms of operating impact, bike lanes are about a 0.02% operating impact, whereas the police just this year was about a 3% increase in operating impact. So the scope and scale of those two things are not really comparable. And yet someone like Tim Carmel who has fought tooth and nail, use bike lanes as this lightning rod, this engine of divisive rhetoric against his council colleagues, can suddenly turn heel and say, 
well, now you have to support everything that I wanted because I came around to this essentially meaningless item. Uh, This is something that I expect we'll see more of. I think your point is valid. I listened back to his remarks and I mean, he talked about bike lanes and then he talked about police. And so it sounded like they were kind of connected. I'm not sure in his mind, if I'm being a bit more charitable to him, that they were exactly. He did say, my pledge to you is to move on from this bike lanes. And then he did say, as you're pointing out, you know, that police have everything they need now and council should really get behind that. I took his comments to be a little bit more of a sign of proposed unity. And I, and, you know, several of the other councillors also mentioned, like, look what we can do when we all work together. And, and indeed, most of the votes were almost unanimous, if not unanimous. But he also said something else about police that I think we definitely need to follow up on. I really hope we start seeing some results now that they have all the tools they asked for. It's a paraphrase of, of, uh, of what Councillor Cartmel said in his closing remark. Does that mean he's good with the level of funding? He's not going to try to seek more police funding in the future? I guess well, that remains to be seen. But I share his interest in some results. Certainly, we'll be keeping an eye on that. I don't quite share your optimism as we go into the back half of council's term and Tim Cartmel is very obviously running for mayor that we're going to see collaborative approaches with his council colleagues that he's running against. We'll see. We'll see who's who's right and who's Mac. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. 19 subsequent motions, Troy, two of which were withdrawn, one of which failed. So it's still a lot of subsequent motions. And so this is the thing that you've criticized council for in the past as well. Now that they've done this work, they cut the proposed increase, they saved some money, they're going to spend a whole bunch more getting all of these reports back on other things. Love that. Uh, Just a couple of other remarks I thought I would mention that stood out to me. Um, Councillor Hamilton, you know, noted, as as I mentioned, that she didn't support the four-year budgets last year, but she called this increase reasonable and defensible. I'm not sure why this one was so much more defensible than what council did in the four-year budget, but here we are. <coughs> Police! <coughs> yeah, maybe. Another one who voted no, of course, was Councillor Rice, and when she gave her closing remarks, she mentioned that she's there to vote for her constituents. And we're going to talk more about Jennifer Rice in a minute. But it was pretty funny to me that she was the last person to do her closing remarks before Mayor Sohi. And then as soon as Mayor Sohi started talking, the first thing he did was thank his office staff and talk about how amazing a group of folks they are. It was just a really delightful juxtaposition given all of the news of the week. I think that's a segue into the news of the week. It would have been hard to miss this news. uh, So I hope I'm not blowing the top off this story for you, dear listener. But if I am, congratulations. Um, You get some exciting news that Councillor Jennifer Rice has uh, been accused by the Edmonton Journal and ostensibly through her former staff in their reporting of a hostile work environment rife with bullying and high turnover. Uh, She's had 19 staff members come through her office in her two-year tenure as Edmonton City Councilor, uh, which is high. Uh, We heard that some staff may have stayed as long as a couple of months, but there were staff that stayed as short as mere days, either through quitting or through firing. And Mac, this was the least surprising story for me. As it was mentioned in the reporting, this was kind of an open secret around Edmonton City Hall, but it is now no longer a secret. It is simply open. Yeah, I think maybe... Just first, some brief kudos to Lauren Boothby and the Post Media journalists who did the reporting on this. They, you know, talked to former staffers and, and put together a solid story. It's it's hard work doing this kind of reporting, especially about something that's quite 
you know, contentious and uh, there's accusations being made and things like that. So uh, it's good work to see that out in uh, out in the public, as you say, and, and not such a open secret as it was. And hopefully, you know, this reporting will lead to some positive change for Councillor Rice and, you know, maybe even broader changes for, you know, councillor offices in the future. If I was a member of Edmonton City Council and I knew that in my private council hallways there was active bullying and abuse of staff going on, that would be unacceptable to me. But on the flip side, if I was a member of Edmonton City Council and I saw things happening in the private council hallway, could I go to the media about that? Could I release this information? Is that appropriate for me to disclose? These are all some sort of the problems that I think council is probably breathing a sigh of relief because I suspect many councillors wanted to take action on this file to protect that safe space behind those doorways at the right side of City Hall. But they need, through their existing process, the integrity commissioner to basically recommend sanctions before they can take action. Councils certainly could pass just by resolution, you know, a sanction or a censure, but they haven't quite done that and they don't quite have that system set up. But even Mayor Amarjeet Sohi said of the existing integrity commissioner flow that he thinks the process is woefully insufficient to actually deal with problems on city council. Yeah, apparently his office did hear concerns from other councillors. As you mentioned, other people have seen this and were, had, were worried about it. And his office did bring concerns to the integrity commissioner in October, and they plan to revisit that and contact the commissioner again in light of this reporting. And he also raised something else that I thought was interesting, which is that you know, there's no whistleblower protections for council assistance. So if they file a complaint, the only way they can do that is through the integrity commissioner. And if they go forward with that, then their identity is revealed as part of that. And so that sounds like a problem. And uh, sounds like something that this situation can help fix, right? So, you know, this is why I said at the beginning, I do think it's good that there's this kind of reporting because it can lead to positive, positive change. What I'm less enthused about is the sort of gossipy uh, nature of some of the discussion that inevitably follows good reporting like this, right? I think many of the allegations against Jennifer Rice are, most people will agree, less serious than the allegations that were levied against city councillor Sean Chu down in Calgary. But I think we can take a lot of lessons from what happened with Sean Chu in Calgary and learn from them. Namely, that just because everyone involved may want someone to resign absolutely doesn't mean they will. Uh, Sean Chu was facing calls from not just his colleagues and the public, but in fact, provincial officials to resign, and he opted not to. Calgary did take some uh, more extraordinary measures. Uh, Sean Chu was removed from committees uh, by council action. Uh, he was prohibited from parking in the secure staff parking lot at uh, Calgary City Hall um, because of his intimidation of the mayor was how it was framed. That does give Edmonton City Council some sort of precedented tools. Should they want to, things like requiring um, Jennifer Rice to have an office outside of the secure councillor's hallway, that's a potential sanction or censure that Edmonton City Council could take. Removal from committees, a reduction of speaking time, these are all things that could go in the toolbox if the Integrity Commissioner report comes back with a result that council does not find reflective of how they want to treat staff at City Hall. Of course, the Integrity Commissioner will have to research this. And I thought it was notable, too, because Keith Jarine at the Edmonton Journal is usually 
pretty measured uh, in some of his commentary around Edmonton City Hall. While he didn't outright call for resignation of a Jennifer Rice, he presented it as one of two options, either do better or resign. Considering his previous reporting, I found him pretty stark. Yeah, and I saw him on Twitter answering questions from folks saying that he didn't come to that position lightly. Like, it's a pretty serious thing to say that somebody should resign. I think he's right that she's got these two options. She, She really needs to take this as a learning opportunity, take the concerns to heart, you know, apologize to all of the people that she's treated poorly and and really try to do a better job going forward. I think it's very unlikely that resignation happens here, especially given we're, you know, halfway through the term now. That doesn't seem like it'll be a, a likely outcome to me. The other thing that Keith mentioned in his column that I am less sure about, however, I take more issue with is this suggestion that, you know, this revolving door of staff is one of the reasons why Councillor Rice has often struggled to appear on top of council business. And I don't think there's a lot of truth to that. I think if you look at what Councillor Rice has said over the past couple of years, if you look at the way she's voted, if you look at the motions she's made, it doesn't strike me as someone who's just barely got her head above water. If only she had a better office situation, she'd have the right information to do, you know, do a better job and get more of these things passed. Her record is clearly someone who does not care to be better to me. That's the way I perceive it. I don't think she has any intention of being the most knowledgeable person, of having staff that could help her better understand these issues. I think this is pretty generous to suggest that if only she was better at treating her staff, then she'd be better at her job. It's like if she really wanted to be better at her job, she wouldn't have treated her staff so poorly. There are ways, you know, through management training and sensitivity training and, you know, self-betterment that she could become a better boss in this office. But in the best case scenario at the end of it, we would still have a counselor affected by truly gross incompetence who's treating her staff well. If you look back at Lauren Boothby and Keith Geraint's previous reporting on this counselor, it has been of a counselor who is ineffective, unable to accomplish her goals, and marred by a gross misunderstanding of what counsel is there to do. I think that the person who would work for a counselor at City Hall is a person like me, someone who watches the West Wing, believes in the Sorkinization (laughs) of politics, wants to make the world better. And I don't think any person who wants to achieve those types of goals will find they're able to do anything of value in Jennifer Rice's office. The counselor simply won't permit that kind of positive outcome in that political space. I do think that uh, the publishing of this article signals the end of Jennifer Rice's term. Whether it's through resignation or whether it's through an election loss in two years, I cannot imagine any situation where this counselor who eked by with a 33 vote win can put this behind her and come out with another term. Uh, This is the end of Jennifer Rice's political career, at least in the city of Edmonton. And of course, my career at Speaking Municipally is making good transition between items, and I have none for this. Stephanie, welcome to the show. You did some reporting on the Warehouse Park, downtown's Marquee Park for Taproot Edmonton. This was aligned with me tweeting um, about Warehouse Park being bad. So interested to get you on um, and really learn and dig in. Give us the overview. What is Warehouse Park and where are we at? 
So Warehouse Park is about to enter the construction phase and it's been billed, you know, we're turning parking lots back into paradise and the city has acquired about one and a half hectares of land downtown and it's going to be between about 106th Street and 107th Street and just north of Jasper Ave to about 102 Ave. We now know what the concept design is. So we're a little bit closer to knowing what will actually be there because before they put out the survey that was like, do you want to have a normal basketball court or do you want to have a funky basketball court that has like three hoops instead of two and do you want to have a water feature or no do you want the trees and the paths to be meandering or do you want them to be straight so now we know what it's going to look like the paths will be meandering and um how many basketball hoops do we have that's the important question here three so they're kind of like facing into each other so that if you wanted to play a normal game of basketball you should go somewhere else (laughs) (laughs) Like maybe to the beautifully paved and linear looking parking lot that's right there. So this is the thing that Troy was tweeting about to say, wait, is this parking lot part of the park? And I think many people in council and administration were annoyed by your tweets, Troy, for suggesting that it was when it doesn't match the shape of the outline. But I I think you're right that they took something that is not there and re-rendered it to make it look good. It makes it look like this is work involved in the park. So the context with this, a warehouse park released their beautiful render. And of course, from the Stanley Milner, we know exactly how much value to ascribe to renders. Sure. About half of the total image space is of a beautifully paved asphalt parking lot with new painted lines. And this is the sort of west parking lot behind the Boston Pizzas, just north of Jasper Ave. It's a gravel parking lot. There's no asphalt there. There's no lines there. Like you said, they've re-rendered it to be something not hideous. There's even a tree in the middle of the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, that is strange. <laughs> so bizarre. And so this is where I draw the problem with the warehouse parking lot. Oh, <laughs> that was a Freudian slip that works. <laughs> We've long since had this problem where renders do not match reality. This render is so disingenuous because if our goal here is to take parking lots and turn them into paradise and we release an image where half of the available image is a parking lot and that parking lot is not within the scope of the project, but you've redesigned it from reality in the render, there's just an honesty problem right here. And whether this is intentional, whether this is intentionally planned to mislead the public, that doesn't quite matter. The end result is it does. We either have a bait and switch where we had something that we were promised is beautiful and will look absolutely hideous because that gravel parking lot does, or we secretly expanded the project scope and are going to pave over that parking lot, which is not something anyone who has supported Warehouse Park wants to do. Either way, it's just not a great look. The worst part, and I think this is what the city is probably annoyed about and councils are annoyed about, is as Stephanie reported, the Warehouse Park is pretty great, right? This is a pretty great project that's transformational for downtown. And yet all I can focus on is this asphalt parking lot that allegedly doesn't even exist. Just two other quick things on the render. I think you pointed this out on Twitter. Doesn't one of the renders actually show like a car driving down the sidewalk where people are walking? Yeah, of course, Warehouse Park was designed to have shared space around. There's a frame around Warehouse Park of sort of like cobblestone pavers where cars and people are supposed to share that space. And the render, honestly, is being very forthcoming about it. There are three people walking and a car is about to hit them. Well, okay, so that's maybe not great. I think you have some uh, 
justification for your criticism of the renders. I do want to say, however, in the preliminary design that was made available, there's a a surprising number of winter renders and nighttime renders, which I appreciate because this has been a problem with most of the projects in the past that we've seen where they're beautiful in the summer and they've got all these nice green trees and there's no concept of what it would look like in the winter, in the dark, which you know, we're joking about being nine months of the year or whatever, but there's a significant amount of time where it's cold and dark. And so I want to see what that thing's going to look like there too. Okay, Stephanie, back to the park itself yeah. and this wonderful design. I want to I want to go back to the render actually. Oh, okay. Sorry. We're not done with the render. Because I'm going to push back a little and I don't think that the rendering of the parking lot is that big of a deal because... <laughs> okay. the... Uninvited from future podcasts. <laughs> You, you can't have, you know, different opinions. No, it, the reason why it, the render comes down to Jasper Ave like that is because 107th Street is part of it. So they had to bring the render down that far. Honestly, I think there's about 10 people in the entire city that would care whether or not that parking lot is paved or not. I think it's a really niche thing and to like to kind of, you know, put down this project that I think is going to be really good. I just I just want to push back a little and say I don't think that the parking lot rendering is that big of a deal. And also, I could be wrong on this where the cars are driving into the people. I think those are laneways that will be shared streets with cars. So I'm not sure if that's what you were saying, but that's maybe why they're on. They are definitely designated in the rendering. They're designated as laneways. Mm. Um, Whether it's a good idea for them to be laneways um, is another matter. Yeah, (laughs) another matter entirely. (laughs) Though, as you say, and I think we're all in agreement here, the park itself, if we just cropped that render, I think Mm. we'd all be in the same page that this is pretty exciting. So take us through some of the exciting things that this park is going to have. Well, going back to that weird basketball court in the winter, it can be turned into a snowbank ice rink. So you can go down and you know, skate around. The one thing that the city wanted to really get home is that it's really geared towards family. So there's a playground and there's public bathrooms there, which I don't have kids, but I know that kids need public bathrooms a lot. So that's a really important um, thing to consider when you're making family-friendly areas. And then there's also a pavilion area, which I spoke with the Downtown Edmonton Community League, and they're really excited about that because there's going to be a chance for programming and, you know, community events to be there. Also, maybe an opportunity for some, like, small concerts and whatnot. It's going to be like a sledding hill. And the Downtown Community League also said they're really excited about having some more tree canopy in the core. They were disappointed that a water feature that was in the preliminary designs did not make it into the final designs. Well, I have a bit of experience with kids and family-friendly parks. (laughs) And so I will, yes, reiterate that having bathrooms is really important. The million-dollar question here is, of course, whether or not they'll be locked Mm-hmm. most of the time, as most of our public washrooms are. But let's assume that they're open and people can access them. That's really great. Water feature would be really nice. Um, but Alex Dakota Park, just mm-hmm. a block away or so, has a water feature there already. So maybe that's okay. You know, playground, I guess we'll see what that's going to look like. But I think that would be really great. And and I kind of like the, as you mentioned, that it's going to be more meandering mm-hmm. and a little bit more organic feeling. I think that's one of my favorite parts about Borden Park is how meandering those paths can be. And you can go all different kinds of places and it feels like you're in a different part of the park when you don't even go very far. So I think that'll be great to have downtown. I don't know how they do this with the trees. I hope the trees look as big and mature as they appear in the renders. But yes, having additional tree canopy downtown would be great. For all of the good that we have in Alex Dakota Park, that's one of the biggest flaws, I think, is there's no shade over there. And it gets the full afternoon west sun 
And uh, it would be good to have more of that in this part. One of the really interesting things that I noticed in the story was um, in your conversation with Ann Stevenson, apparently the development industry is already being consulted to line up development timelines Mm -hmm. to build sort of in tandem with the opening of this park, which I think signals a real strong endorsement and a real strong confidence in this park. Because normally with our CRL type style development, it's we build the thing and then hope that the actual thing encourages people to come. But this is a case where it's like, we're so sure this thing is great. Let's organize the coming in tandem with the building of the thing. I think if it pays off, could be very transformative. And Councillor Ann Stephen also talked about how that parking lot beside the Boston Pizza, you know, right now it's being used as a parking lot. I, the rates are like just under $15 a day to park for the day. And, um, but, but it would ideally be turned into yet another development right next to the park so that, you know, those residents could go out and enjoy it. Yeah, the warehouse park tower presented by Boston Pizza. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this park uh, is... I've seen some construction signage. I've seen some fencing up here. When are we getting it? So construction is slated to begin in the new year and it's scheduled to be completed in 2025. We'll see if that actually happens, but it's scheduled for completion in about two years. Of course, this uh, reporting, thank you, Stephanie, was brought to you by Taproot's newest reporter, uh, which was funded through Taproot's journalism endeavors. Google is now going to be I understand, paying you a few million dollars a year, Mac, uh, according to this agreement with this federal government. Do I have that exactly right? Well, not exactly. That'd be amazing. Google, I'm quite happy to receive your checks. Uh, I'll send you my address after the show. Yeah, this is related to Bill C-18. So, of course, this is the federal government's effort to extort money from Google and Meta, which owns Facebook. And the deadline was coming up for this. So we're already blocked and all Canadian news publications are blocked on Meta. And the regulations for this bill are coming out in December. And if there was no deal reached, the risk was that Google would have followed in Meta's footsteps and blocked all Canadian news publishers as well. And that would have been really much worse than Meta blocking everyone. Like all news sites get way more traffic and far more referrals and everything from Google. Far more people, you know, use Google as their starting point to find out what's going on, to find out information about something, what's happening in artificial intelligence notwithstanding, because maybe we won't use search engines in a couple of years. But currently, it's a really critical part of the news ecosystem. So the worst case scenario here would have been that there was no deal and Google just blocked everybody. So the federal government reached a deal with Google and they're kind of celebrating this as a win. It's really not, if you stop to think about it. They had said that this Bill C-18 stuff was going to result in maybe $200, $250 million for Canadian news. Where we've landed is $100 million a year from Google and blocked on Meta. So I don't think that's a win. Um, It's really like an own goal when you think about it. But at least in this case, the worst case scenario is avoided. Now, I got to talk about this on CBC this week, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. The thing for Taproot here is that we're just not sure if we'll benefit from this, right? So we don't know how the 100 million is going to be distributed. I'm a little bit confused here because wasn't the point of C18 that Google had to sort of negotiate with every journalism organization and come to an agreement. So hasn't Google emailed you and said, this is how much we're going to pay you? How's that going to work? Well, this is another thing about the federal government maybe not handling this so well. So Google said it wasn't tenable to negotiate with every media company. They wanted to have a single point of contact. And that is something the federal government evidently has relented on in order to come to this agreement. So Google will now be able to negotiate 
with one organization that will then disperse the funding to Canadian media. And so there's the big question for us. Are we going to be eligible for that? Are we going to get part to be part of that organization? Because if it's News Media Canada or some of the other organizations that have been tapped to do this in the past, it's pretty clear they don't care about small players like us and independents. And in fact, they've crafted rules in the past and supported rules in the past that actively exclude pop-up publications such as the Sprawl Down in Calgary, for example. So it remains to be seen if Taproot will get to tap into this funding. Like you said, the main takeaway from this is crisis averted. The worst outcome has been avoided. Uh, I don't necessarily think that this is a good outcome. There's been several caveats. I think you and I have both talked about this is pretty poorly crafted legislation, top to bottom and poorly rolled out. So I guess, you know, this is the uh, cloud silver lining, the lemonade out of the lemons, uh, whatever metaphor you want to use. (laughs) And so too, do we have the nice little silver lining or red flickering lining at the end of the episode where you get your bit of joy in our rapid fire segment. This week, it was revealed that Edmonton City Councilor Jennifer Rice was previously dismissed from a past role on the New York Stock Exchange. Investigative reporting discovered that she was dismissed from the role after only one afternoon on the job. Her fellow traders revealed that they were unable to work with her across the room because she's, quote, not the type of person who yells. Edmonton Oilers captain Connor McDavid likes his tax rate increases like he likes his team's rankings. One point below Calgary. That joke is correct as of recording on Thursday, November 30th. (laughs) With a no-snow November leaving the ground without the cover of the white typical for this time of year, many Edmontonians have been speculating about the cause, from climate change to El Nino. However, earlier today, the Royal Mayfair Golf Club has taken credit for the winter drought, saying, quote, If there's no snow, that means that no pours cross-country skiing on our pristine, majestic, members-only prime River Valley land that we barely pay for. And of course, Speaking Municipally is a production of Taproot Edmonton. It's supposed to be publication, and I'll never get that P right for you, Mac. Also, the P is the pulse. You can start your day informed with Taproot's daily news briefing. The pulse tells you what you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning, and you'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at Edmonton City Hall, plus coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and more. And the more is really growing these days, Mac. I'm noticing your output increasing almost like in correlation with the number of new staff that you're hiring. I don't know if that's by design or anything, but uh, Hey, we kudos. have a great team doing great work. Yeah, it's it's awesome to see more stuff in the Pulse. You can check it out at taprootedmonton.ca. And that's all for this week. Uh, before we go, Mac, I think we have now sent the emails. We have confirmed the roster is complete. We can announce, speaking municipally Jeopardy this year, I'm very excited, will be the most jeopardy Jeopardy so far. We have two real, actual Jeopardy contestants. Kyle Marshall, the EPL staff member who was on Jeopardy earlier in the year, he will be participating in Speaking Municipally Jeopardy. In addition to Sam Papua, who is a uh, Alberta government staffer, she was on later last year. She is joining us with Speaking Municipally Jeopardy. And we needed a third one. Not many Edmontonians have actually been on Jeopardy. So we've got a concept of like, he's the chaser, I guess. He literally wrote the book. On trivia in Edmonton, it's M.L. Tiedemann. He wrote the Edmonton Trivia Book, which I may or may not have stolen questions from for past Speaking Municipally Jeopardy episodes. He's going to be on too to see, is it better to be on Jeopardy or is it better to write an Edmonton Trivia Book? I guess we'll find out. Stay tuned in the podcast feed for that. Do you want to know how you can get it? As soon as it happens, it's by subscribing in your podcast app of choice. And that's it. Um, Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Stephanie. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.